Well, good morning. It's really good to be here with you all again. The last time that my wife and I were here uh, at Harvest was many years ago, and um, I was preaching, but it was so long ago I wasn't allowed to call it preaching. I was exhorting because I was just a uh, poor seminary student. Um, but it's good to see you, and I see familiar faces. I might forget names, but please come up and, and um, say hi after the service and reintroduce yourselves. We, uh, Carrie and I bring uh, th- three extra ones this time that we didn't have with us last time, so we'd love to uh, have them meet you as well. And I also bring greetings from Kalamazoo, uh, Michigan. Uh, they are uh, so happy that uh, uh, we could partner in this way, especially with the Foster's baptism. Uh, they're not so happy that we're enjoying the warm weather while it is gray and cold there, but oh well. Uh, today for our scripture reading, uh, we're going to turn to 1 Samuel. So if you're not there already, please uh, do take a copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Just five verses for us to consider And uh, we will stand as we hear God's word read. So let's uh, take our Bibles and we'll stand. We'll silence our hearts and we'll give our attention to the living Lord as he speaks to us today from 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The grass withers, the flower fades. This is the word of our Lord. It stands forever. Let's ask his blessing on the preaching of it. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. You speak to your people. You speak to us today. And that is a supernatural work. But we also need the supernatural work of of being able to hear. And so we ask that by your spirit, you would open up our ears, you'd open up our minds and our hearts, that you would illuminate us so that we could understand the words that you are speaking, that we would receive them for what they truly are, words of life, that we would store them in our hearts, that we would seek to live by them, that we would see Jesus in these verses, that we would come to know him better, come to love him uh, better, come to follow him more faithfully. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would work powerfully through the reading and the preaching of the scriptures, and we ask that you would graciously give us the things that we do not have on our own. So what we do not know, would you teach us? What we do not have, would you grant us? And what we are not yet, Lord, by your spirit working with the word through faith, Would you make us? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're reading about Dagon, the Philistine uh, god. Dagon, this is not the first time, though, we've actually encountered him in the biblical data. Not a whole lot is known about Dagon. Uh, He's not as popular as the other Philistine uh, god, Baal, but um, some 
Archaeologists have uncovered ancient documents from the 14th century that seem to indicate that Dagon was actually Baal's father. Uh, but in the biblical story, his first mention comes in Judges, in the story of Judges, when the Philistines attribute their victory over that mighty Israelite warrior, that mighty judge named Samson. And they say Dagon's the reason they've defeated Samson. Judges 16.23, now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice, for they said, our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. Well, it would seem that Dagon had the upper hand. That is, of course, until Samson tears down uh, his temple to the ground. He kills more Philistines in that final moment of his death than all that he'd killed during his life. Now, while that was evidently a, a death blow to thousands of Dagon worshipers, the death blow to Dagon himself actually comes in the verses we have uh, read and that we're considering this morning. And this is what we learn in this text. We learn that the God who deserves all worship will receive all worship. The God who deserves it will receive it, and that has major implications for you and me. Philippians 2 tells us that every knee will bow before Christ. Every knee will bow, and that means since one day every knee will bow, right now every knee should bow. The God who deserves all worship will receive it. Are we giving our worship? Are we giving our hearts to the God who deserves them? That's the question, that's the searching question that this text asks. Are we giving our hearts to the God who deserves them and will one day get them anyway? We want to consider that under two overall headings, general headings, Yahweh's worth. That is, we want to see that he is worthy of our worship. And secondly, Yahweh's warning, the warning that he gives to the Philistines, but then also to us today, of the consequences of not worshiping him. First, though, Yahweh's worth. So the Philistines have recently captured the ark. They've brought it into one of their main cities, Ashdod. And there they brought the ark of the covenant into the temple that was dedicated to Dagon. Now, this is not a rebuilt temple from the one that Samson pulled down to, to the ground. Uh, this is actually a different temple in a different city. Philistia had five major cities. It's called a Pentopolis. Uh, five cities that, that are in a region that's on the news um, uh, kind of nonstop right now. The Gaza Strip there, that's, that's where the Philistines occupied back in the day. Um, there were five cities, Ashdod, Gaza, Ekron, Ashkelon, and Gath. So Each city had its own temple dedicated to Dagon and and other idols. Samson had brought down the one in Gaza, but now we're in Ashdod. And bringing the ark into the temple of Dagon was a move on the part of the Philistines that had a twofold purpose. On the one hand, it was meant to humiliate the Israelites, and, and it should have humiliated them. Their, their Lord, their holy God, was being housed in the most profane place imaginable. A temple to an idol. That's certainly the one purpose. They wanted to make the Israelites feel the shame of having lost their ark. But secondly, the Philistines believed that housing the Israelites' uh, God would make their God more powerful. 
If the Ark of the Covenant is in Dagon's temple, they believe there'd be some transference of celestial power from Yahweh to Dagon, making him mightier and stronger. And so in this way, capturing the Ark was sort of like a capture the flag, right? Whoever has the flag has the upper hand. They have Israel's flag now. They have Israel's Ark. They believe they had the upper hand, but they were wrong. For while being shelved in a temple is, in fact, Dishonoring to Yahweh, it is not disempowering to Yahweh. It's dishonoring to him, but it does not disempower him. This is what it means for him to be holy. What does it mean for God to be holy? It means that he's separate, entirely separate, utterly separate from from the actions or the intentions of human beings. That there is nothing that we can say or, or do or attempt to do that actually affects God in any way, that can detract from his holiness, that can, that can take away from his glory or his splendor or his power, like the Philistines thought. They thought, if we have his ark in our temple, we get his power. They didn't understand the holiness of God. They didn't understand the utter otherness of God. He's untouched by human actions or intentions, whether good or bad. And so what does that mean? That means that we cannot add to God's glory, nor could we ever take away from it. Um, That's important for us to understand. Even as well-intentioned worshipers, we talk about glorifying God. We talk about uh, singing to his glory. What What does that mean? What are we saying? We're not saying that we're giving God something he doesn't have on his own. Certainly not. We're not even saying we're increasing something that God has a little bit of. He has some glory. We want to give him more glory. No, that's not what we mean. Uh, Puritan Thomas Adams explains it well. He says, we that cannot make his name greater can make it seem greater. That's the idea. What are we doing when we glorify God? We who cannot make his name greater can make it seem greater. To glorify God means to give him the worship that's due his name. He already deserves it. He are, it's already his. We're giving to him what is already his. Or, or we could think of it like this. Glorifying God is, is like taking a, a magnifying glass or a spotlight, however you want to think of it. And it's shining it. It's highlighting. It's emphasizing what's already there. God is already all glorious. We can't add to that, nor can we detract from it. We that cannot make his name greater can make it seem greater. The inverse is true. We that cannot make his name lesser, though, can make it seem lesser. I wonder if you're doing that today. Are you making God's name seem less glorious? Does he seem less marvelous if people were to look at your life and know that you claim to be a Christian? Are you detracting from his holiness? The Heidelberg Catechism and the section on the Lord's Prayer when it says, what does it mean to pray, hallowed be your name, gives this answer. It means that we're asking God to help us direct all our living, what we think, say, and do, so that your name will never be blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. So we, we affirm the attribute of God's holiness, his transcendence. He is entirely and utterly other than his, his power is untouchable. The Philistines, perhaps the surrounding nations, assumed that because the ark was now housed in a Canaanite worship center, uh, that Yahweh was no longer worthy of worship. But they learned their error the next morning, didn't they? Let's look at the text. Upon entering the following day, 
this is uh, verse uh, 3. What do they find? Verse 3, when the people of Ashdod rose early, the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and put him back in his place. So they, they get up early in the morning. They go to have their you know, uh, uh, morning prayer service, whatever, some morning worship. And uh, they find Dagon on his face in front of the ark. Uh, he's prostrate before Yahweh. He's taking up the posture of a reverent worshiper, isn't he? Uh, the picture is so abundantly clear to us, but the people refuse to acknowledge it. Instead, they excuse it away. Maybe they think, oh, you know, a gust of wind came through, and if somebody forgot to shut the window last night and, and knocked uh, the Dagon over, and he falls down. Of course, careful attention to the prepositions in the text, and I know we're always paying careful attention to prepositions, right? I mean, <laughs> this is exciting stuff. Uh, but if you, you follow the prepositions, you'll see that, that it would be absurd to say this is a coincidence. Look at verse 2. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside, the Hebrew word etzel, beside Dagon. Now we compare that with the scene the next morning. Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before, lifne, a different Hebrew word, before the ark of the Lord. So on the night before, he's beside. The next morning, he's in front of, he's before. And they're saying, well, you know, the wind maybe did this, or, or maybe they don't even want to uh, guess what happened. They don't want to address it. But of course, we recognize how could an inanimate object turn around, roll over on its belly, and scoot over to be lying on the floor in front of the ark, which the night before he was beside. It was beside. Well, it had to be moved, and it was by Yahweh. And just as Dagon couldn't get to his position of face in the dirt worship before Yahweh without Yahweh yanking him down, he can't get back to his exalted position in the temple without the priests coming in and then picking him up. And what does it say? They put him back in his place. And this really is laughable. What kind of God can't even stand up on his own? How could Dagon have gained victory over Israel if he can't even get up off the floor. I mean, Dagon is in need of life alert, right? He's fallen and he can't get up. And that's the situation. And, and it is meant to be humorous. Uh, the, the, the Israelites, as they record this story, they want you to laugh because they're saying, you know what God's doing? He's laughing. Psalm 2, the Lord looks on the attempts of, uh, of his enemies to, to dishonor him. And what does he do? He sits in the heavens and he laughs because it's pathetic. Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? It is laughable until we consider the ways that we might be doing the very same thing in our lives that the Philistines are doing here. What might we be worshiping that is as lifeless as Dagon? You see, whereas God is in need of nothing, he doesn't even need our worship, the hallmark of idols is that they need everything. They need us. The hallmark of idolatry or of an idol is that there's this we could call it this damning dependency between the idol and the idol worshiper, between us and our idols, because we think we will die without what they give us. But the reality is they die without us. If we don't give them our time, our attention, our affections, they themselves would die. I wonder, friends, if I could ask it this way, are you living today for something that actually can't live without you? 
Are you living for something that can't live without you? Maybe it's your career, uh, your success in your career, uh, your prestige, your addictions. If there is a God in your life that were Yahweh to come in and, and knock it over, put it on the dirt. If, if there's a God in your life, an idol in your life that, that a pastor were to come in, a friend, an elder, a, a mentor, come in and speak a word of exhortation to you and correction that would knock that idol down on the ground. If there's an idol in your life were to fall on the ground and you would have to pick it back up, that's no God at all. That's a toy. It's a toy. That's an idol. And it will kill you if you keep giving it your heart, if you keep giving it your time and your attention. This is the whole point of this scene, that there is only one God, and he's the one worthy of worship. And even other so-called gods must give to him their praise. The psalmist writes that in Psalm 97. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. And then the command, worship him, all you gods. This is what Calvin says about that verse. He says, it's as if the psalmist had said, whatever is accounted or held as a God must quit its place, renounce its claims, so God alone is exalted. Hence, it may be gathered that the true definition of piety, this is Calvin talking, and back then when they used the word piety, they, they didn't just mean godliness, they meant religion in, in essence. So this is the true definition of religion, or we could say Christianity. So we want to pay attention. What does Calvin say is the true definition of Christianity when the true God is perfectly served and when he alone is so exalted that no creature obscures his divinity? And accordingly, if we would not have true piety entirely destroyed in us, we must hold by this principle no creature whatsoever be exalted by us beyond measure. I wonder if there's such a creature in your life that you've exalted beyond measure that's obscuring the divinity of Yahweh. Is there something you're living for that actually can't live without you? There's only one, one person that you should live for, and it's the living God. The living God who doesn't need you is the one who's worthy of you in everything that you have. Well, since the Philistines were obtuse to that lesson, Yahweh, he doubles down, doesn't he? The next morning, they find Dagon's back in the dirt, but what else? This time, decapitated, missing his hands. You you get the picture, it's pretty clear, right? He can't think, he's got no head, he can't act, he has no hands. He's destitute of, of wisdom and power. He's dead. Of course, he always was, just like any other idol. But herein lies Yahweh's warning. That's the second thing we're considering this morning. And we saw Yahweh's worth. Now see the warning to the Philistines as they walk in that morning and they see their beloved idol with no head and no hands laying in the dirt. Here's the warning. Your God is dead and you will be too soon if you do not change, if you do not repent. This is a picture of what you're heading towards. This is a picture of your future. The warning comes to us as well from the Psalms. Would you turn there with me, Psalm 135? I'd like us to see that together. Psalm 135, verses 15 through 18. Psalm 
Picking up verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak, eyes, but do not see, ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouth. And here's the warning. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. That's terrifying. If you'll you'll let those words sink in and recognize what God is saying, it's a terrifying warning. There's no breath in them, and those who worship them become like them. What's that mean? Those who worship lifeless things will die. This is, here's the biblical principle. We become like what we worship. That's what Psalm 135 says. And Paul repeats that in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians when he says, you remember that famous passage when he says that we with with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord. And what's the upshot, uh, upshot of beholding the glory of the Lord? That we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. As we behold the glorious God, we become more glorious. It's sanctification. We're becoming like what we worship. We become like what we worship, whether that's for our ruin, like in the case of the Philistines, they'll be dead like Dagon, or whether that's for our restoration and our redemption for those who worship the living and the true God. This is the biblical principle. Idols are dead, and so are all who trust in them. I I hope you sense the wake-up call in this text for us today. I, I don't think I could put it any more clearly than this. What you worship is a matter of life and death. What you worship is a matter of life and death. What do you worship? There's no question more urgent than that. And you see what happens with the Philistines. They're so stubborn in their idolatry. They refuse to heed the warning. Right? Instead of Dagon becoming worthless to them, they instead worship the place where he died. You see how that happens? It says the head of Dagon and, and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk was left. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. It's become a sacred space. It's become a tourist attraction, right? This is the place where our God died. How amazing is that? You know, think about it for two seconds, Philistines. Come on. It's ridiculous. They completely missed the point. They ignored the warning. We ignore warnings, sadly, all the time. We ignore warnings every single day. I mean, every day, you, you know, you, you, you open up the pantry to get a snack and, and you pull stuff out of the pantry and our food is, is, is covered with warnings that say, do not eat me, right? Read the ingredients. I'm bad for you. Don't put me in your mouth. And we're just, yeah, okay. We ignore warnings all the time. We ignore, um, well, yeah, especially if you're running late to guest preach somewhere, you ignore the warnings on the on the side of the road that tell you how fast you're supposed to be driving. I wouldn't know. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. We ignore warnings all the time. No matter how high prices rise, cigarette sales still soar. The law warns of penalizations and imprisonment. People still steal. They still cheat. They commit all sorts of crimes. We ignore warnings. The Philistines missed the point. They ignored the warning. Brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss the point today. Don't miss the warning today. It is as serious as life and death until you put your faith in the living God and the resurrected Christ and the life-giving spirit you yourself cannot live. 
Until you put your faith in the living God, the resurrected Christ, in the life-giving spirit, you won't have life in you. But to worship the living and true God will make you alive and true as well. I want to end by giving a word of hope and inspiration, though, as well, especially to struggling believers today. You who who love the Lord, you believe in the Lord, you want to worship him, and yet you still feel that pull of idolatry. And maybe you felt it for years. You feel drawn to worthless things like greed or pride, self-assertion, making sure everybody knows that you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, and, and um, maybe placarding all of your achievements on social media. And you know you shouldn't be doing it, but you just feel drawn to that again and again, or you're, you're drawn to that drink that, that, that you have... You have a, a list of a, a dozen occasions in your life, two dozen, three dozen, four dozen occasions in your life where getting drunk has, has only hurt other people, and yet you're, you're still drawn back to this thing that has ruined relationships in the past or pornography for some of us, some kinds of addictions where we hate them, but we're drawn to them again and again. And so we read a text like this, and we wonder, could I really belong to the living and true Lord? Or maybe I'm more like a Philistine. Maybe I'm more like somebody who's headed for death. So to you struggling believer who feels drawn to worthless things and, and you hate it but you feel like you can't stop and you feel like your, your love for Christ is counterfeit or, or maybe not good enough or strong enough and, and you fear one day you'll end up like Dagon, slain before a holy God, I want to give you some hope. That's what we're going to end on. And, and the hope, I believe, is found in the text itself. The hope is this, if you have put your faith in Christ Jesus, if you believe on him, no matter how weak that faith might be, but if that faith is there and if it's real, here's what happens. Jesus takes up residence in your heart. That's what the scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 Corinthians 6, they both teach us that we are now temples of the living Lord. He dwells in us by his spirit. If Jesus is living in your heart, if he's taking up residence in your heart, then doesn't this text give us some encouragement of what will happen to the other idols that are living there as well? Do you see it? This chapter is God taking up residence in a house of idolatry, a a temple of Satan and sin. Isn't that what our hearts are before Christ? Right? We, we are we're children of wrath. We follow after the, the prince of, of the power of the air. Our, our hearts themselves are nothing other than a synagogue for Satan and, and a factory of idols. But when Christ moves into our hearts, who wins? Him or the idols? He does. Every time. Every time. What, what this passage teaches us is that God is not good at sharing space with idols. He says, this is my house, get out. If you're a Christian today, though you struggle with idolatry, that Lord is speaking that same reality in your heart. He's saying, this is my house. You're not welcome here. You're trespassing. Get out. And God gets the victory every time. When he takes up his residence, he does so perfectly, powerfully, and permanently. We learn that here. 1 Samuel 5 proves 
that rather than the idols profaning God's holiness, rather than their presence profaning God's holiness, his holiness destroys their presence. He puts an end to them. He silences them because he sanctifies all that come near. So if Christ is in your heart by faith, listen to me on this. This makes all the difference in your Christian walk, especially you struggling believer who who maybe more often than not uh, leave church with your head hanging low, feeling I haven't done it again. I know, I've been there. I, I know that feeling. I want you to leave today with your head held high because you have a savior dwelling in your soul who says these idols will not win. We have a God, every time the idols creep in, who says, here it is, but now its head is cut off, its arms are cut off, it's in the dirt, bury it. That's what it means to have the living Lord living in your life. And so take heart. If the Lord has come near to you, he will sanctify you. Those other gods you feel drawn to will slowly but surely fall down dead one by one. Christ is the true Ark of the Covenant. And when he enters the heart of fallen man, which apart from him is nothing other than a temple to an idol, when he enters the heart of fallen man, those idols will fall. Every attempt to reestablish them will be thwarted. Sin, sin will be defeated, and the Lord will claim and will possess the throne forever and ever, world without end. We're talking about you. We're talking about your heart forever and ever will belong to Christ the King. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your gospel promises in your word. Thank you that you are a powerful God and you do not entertain rivals, but you utterly defeat them. You destroy them. And Lord, that's our future. We still are drawn to idolatry. Yes, we feel indwelling sin, But this passage is giving us hope. It's giving us a picture of the future. Every idol will fall down dead and Christ will be on the throne of our hearts perfectly, permanently, forever and ever. What hope this gives us. Would this uh, encourage us? Would it inflame our affections? Would it enlarge our love for you and, and help us to go out this week to say no to sin, say yes to righteousness, to say no to those idols and to preach to ourselves the truth that they are dead. But when we worship you, the living God, we are made alive as well. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your gospel. We ask that you'd implant it in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen.